Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about accessibility. We're talking about how to make your game accessible to a large amount of people, no matter uh, what walk of life they come from, what kind of issues they might be dealing with. And we're talking to Brandon Rollins. Oh, Brandon, the game dev, man. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, man, I'm excited to talk to you about this stuff. You're a guy that I've been following for a long time. I read pretty much all your blog posts. I put your posts in the, the weekly newsletter for the BGDL. And so you're somebody that the people have kind of gotten to know one blog post at a time. You run Pangea Games, and you've got uh, one game you did, right. War Company, a while back, and now you've got a new one coming out uh, that's on Kickstarter right now. I want to talk to you a little bit about that in a minute. But, Brendan, what else? is? Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Tell me a little bit more about your bio, how you got into games, all that good stuff. All right. My name is Brandon Rollins. I make games and I write about making games. I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I made Warco. I did that in um, August 2016. That's when I kickstarted that. Highways and Byways is live on Kickstarter right now if you're interested in that. And the way I got into games was um, I got into games through Warco. Like I, I had played, um, you know, the basic board games that a lot of people are exposed to as a kid. You know, your Risk and Sorry and Monopoly and all that. I got really into hobby board games actually after I started designing my own. So about like two and a half years ago. Gotcha. And so what what kind of brought you in to really dive? I mean, you're about to, you know, you're, you got your second Kickstarter going on. Like what really drew you in? What you what you enjoy about it? What I enjoyed about doing my first game, I enjoyed just taking a creative project and completing it, just um, figuring out how to actually get all these wild ideas together, how to make it into a physical product, how to push that to people who are interested in it. And then over time, I realized that I just really like board games and that I really like making them myself and um, writing about doing that and helping other people do that. I very slowly, gradually became a part of the hobby board game um, general community that way yeah definitely now what got you wanting to do the blog how how did that get going that was um i want to say i did that around october 2016 i just kind of wasn't sure what to do after warco to Mm -hmm. be perfectly honest with you i had the intention of just making one game i i started that as an experiment just uh, to write a little bit about the things i had learned in that year year and a half build up about the um the business lessons and the game design lessons and over about like eight months, I finally found my voice and I decided I'm going to write this specifically for someone who um, has not ever made a board game before, knows nothing about how to make a board game and just talk them through everything they need to know to go from knowing nothing about it to the, a year or two down the road, they've got something self-published. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like you've got a you've had a pretty good response. I know, you know, a lot more people are aware of you just because you've you've helped them. Have you found that to be the case where, where it just seems like a lot of people know you now? Maybe not so much for your games, but for the help you've given them through the through the blog? Yeah, strangely enough, I, the blog is like eclipsed what um what I was doing with Warco and what I'm maybe even doing with Highways and Byways. Like um a lot of people know me first as the game developer and less through like the games. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting, interesting how, how that uh, flows sometime. Well, cool, man. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about mm-hmm. accessibility, but let's just get a good working definition. What would you say uh, is accessibility, especially when it comes to board games? The basic idea of board game accessibility is just making a game that as many people as possible can enjoy. It sounds really simple at its core, but there is a whole lot that goes into doing that. Yeah, definitely. And I'm excited to kind of talk to you about some of the different uh, avenues or different different parts of the accessibility thing. Let's just kind of go through those one by one. These are some things you've covered on your blog in the past and just you know talked about it from different angles. And I just want to hit some of the big highlights in this stuff. Let's talk about visual accessibility. What does it mean to make your game visually accessible to your to the gamers? If I may make a shout out first, yeah, if that's ahead. okay with yeah. you. Um, before we get into accessibility as like a deeper subject, I want to just shout out Dr. Michael Heron of Meeple Like Us. He's the guy who introduced me through his blog to the whole idea of board game accessibility. And my the way that I think about accessibility is extremely heavily influenced by his school of thought, what I consider to be his school of thought. Yeah, definitely. And then there'll be a, a link in the show notes to his website. If you want to check him out, you just go to boardgamedesignlab.com and you can click the link to Meeples Like Us and you can learn all the, the different, like kind of the bigger picture. This is going to be like a surface level conversation here. And if you want to go really in depth, go click on that link and, uh, and the good doctor will help you understand the much, much greater depth of accessibility. Very academic, but still very funny at the same time. <laughs> definitely. All right. So let's get into the visual side. What is the visual accessibility? So visual accessibility is making sure that your game can be played by people who are, say, nearsighted or farsighted, or also um, people who have color blindness, some sort of color vision deficiency. And th- these are the two really, really big ones. Okay. And what, like, give me a number, give me a percentage of people do you know uh, that suffer with some of these issues? Colorblindness alone, I want to say, is like one in 15 people. I would actually, do you mind if I Google that really quick? No, go ahead, man. Yeah, it's like 8% of people, so that'd be about 15% of, or no, 8% of men, half a percent of women, mm-hmm. which is pretty substantial. Right. So podcast example, you get a room full of 25 people, mm-hmm. two of them are going to be colorblind. Usually red, usually they get red and green mixed up, but it's not always that. And you'll see a lot of board games, they'll have like, they'll have red pieces and they'll have green pieces and there is literally nothing else to tell them apart. They've just got red and green and you cannot tell the pieces apart at all if you're colorblind. Right. So let's talk through what are some of the ways that a game designer can help with this uh, issue, can help people that maybe are colorblind. Like you said, you know, 8% of people struggle with this. One of my really good friends is colorblind. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, so, I mean, it's is a personal thing. And all the games that we play, he'll look at the, you know, the, the cubes or whatever's on the table and he'll go, hey, is that, a, is that red or green? <laughs> and, if, <laughs> and if it's a competitive game, I tell him the wrong one. Um, but if it's quite Oh, no, that's just not nice. That's just not <laughs> no, nice. I'm just kidding. But, you know, he, he struggles with it. And I tell you what, though, as a game designer, it's been very helpful to me because I can show him my designs and say, hey, tell me these issues. Like, what are, wh- when you look at these colors, what do you see? And that's helped me actually uh, make my designs better. And so what are some ways that you've found are, are good ways for designers to help with that, that part of the accessibility issue? There's three ways that I can think of, and these two – Um, These first two alone will just save you tons and tons of time. The first one is look up a colorblind safe palette. You can find ones online. I believe there's a seven color one and a 12 color one. We can link that in the show notes if you've got them later. Um, 
yeah, you can you can use seven and twelve color color blindness palettes, which are specifically chosen colors so that people with various color vision deficiencies will have less trouble telling them apart because um, it won't be like green and red it'll be a certain shade of red and a certain shade of blue um or like two certain shades of blue ones that are really easy for people with various kinds of um color vision abilities to tell apart that's the easiest first thing to do and i actually incorporated this into highways and byways the whole board game is split up into seven color zones and those are just very slightly tweaked from the original um color blind safe palette that i was intending to use gotcha now what else second thing is there are colorblind uh, there are actual colorblindness simulators that you can find online and you can upload images of your game to these colorblindness simulators and it will give you a pretty rough idea of what um people will see with various uh, levels of color vision like uh green green red confusion as well as people who can't tell the difference between say uh, certain shades of blue and certain shades of yellow. You can even do completely monochrome and see if it holds up too. Gotcha. And so, what's the what's the third way? Third one is you always want to have, um, if you can do it, you want to have like a, a symbol or something else that can help you differentiate things that have different colors. Like um, if you have to have, if you absolutely have to have a red card and a green card, you can have a little plus on the red card and a little uh, like a little star on the green card so you can tell them apart. You can you can see a similar concept at work on uh, on stoplights in the United States. Most of them will put the red light on the very top of the light and the green one on the very bottom. Yeah, that's a great point. And some of the games I've seen do this really well, they have certain patterns. You know, the red has stripes and the green has circles or something like that. And it, it makes it very easy, not only for colorblind people, just maybe for people that are playing games in low lighting, right? There's a lot exactly. of times. Yeah, a lot of times where you don't have any kind of issue with your eyes. You can see perfectly fine in normal daylight. But when you're playing and it's two o'clock in the morning and, and you got dim lights in your dining room or whatever, you know, certain colors are just hard to see. And so this isn't even just uh, for certain people. It's it's for all people because you never know what kind of uh, environment they're going to be playing in. Now, let's let's talk about what you mentioned earlier as well is, is like the uh, people that are maybe nearsighted or farsighted. So what are some ways that, that we as game designers can make our games more accessible to people with those kind of visual impairments? Use the biggest font that you can. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, I know it's super simple, but just use the biggest font that you can. A lot of games I see will be using 7 and 8 point font. I'll try and use 11 and 12 if I can. Bigger is better, but sometimes you can't do that for cost reasons or space. Um, I'd say unless you cannot avoid it, don't go under 10. Gotcha. That's a really good point. Now, are there any fonts that you know of that are maybe better than others that are just easier to read or easier to see? You might want to fact check this one a little bit later, but I have heard that people with dyslexia are more able to read um, fonts that, that are like Comic Sans and Arial mm -hmm. because uh, the letters are more distinctive. You can actually tell them apart a little more. So say serif fonts, fonts with the little um, – with little – I, I don't know exactly what you'd call it, but little extra bits on the letters, mm -hmm. like those will translate better than sans serif fonts, which are just straight lines and simple curves. Gotcha. Well, folks, you heard it here first. Brandon the Game Dev says, for all your font choices, you need to use Comic Sans. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't pin that <laughs> one on me. Don't pin that one on me. <laughs> hey, it makes no, your... At least throw in some papyrus. <laughs> That's right. It makes your game more accessible that way. Good old Comic Sans. We finally found a good use for Comic Sans, is what you're saying. 
Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm going to stand by it. I own it. I own it. <laughs> awesome. Now, any other things we need to be thinking about from the visual side of accessibility? Those are the probably the highest value ones. There are There's other visual accessibility concerns, but those are the really big ones. Gotcha. Okay. In that case, let's move on to the physical side. And what are we, what are we talking about when we say physical accessibility? So have you ever tried to pick up a piece off the table and you just cannot get your hands around it for some reason? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) It's stuff like that. Or have you ever had so many cards in your hand that you just can't like actually hold them and read them at the same time? I don't run into that issue. I've got pretty big hands, but whenever I play with certain friends who, especially like females or my kids or whatever, who have like very small hands. Yeah, that's, that's a struggle. Mm-hmm. So it's just a bunch of various things like that that can make the game a little harder to use. Anything that's really fiddly, like small pieces, anything that requires you to um, to shuffle a lot of cards, that can be a concern. Paper money, that's a big problem. That yeah. one can be a big problem. And um, anything where you cannot tell pieces apart by touch, too, that can be a physical accessibility concern. Gotcha. And so we're talking about are we. Well, let me back up. Are we talking about people that maybe are blind or or in that kind of thing? Like they can't look at the, the the piece and know what it is, so they need to be able to touch and know the the shape of it. Is that kind of what we're talking about? What other like give me the like the bigger picture physical accessibility? Like what group of people are we talking about? Generally, we're talking about people who, for whatever reason, cannot pick up your pieces or who are having trouble actually using the components of the game, who cannot actually physically interact with the game in a satisfactory manner. That can mean people with nerve damage in their hands. That's a thing that can happen. Um, or that could just mean you and me having trouble uh, picking up uh, you know, cardboard coins off of the table. Gotcha. So people that, that struggle with, with motor skills or just... People who maybe have also been drinking a little bit too much during game night. That could yeah, also that be. Too. <laughs> That's actually valid. That's a very valid point. Right. I mean, let's, you know, it's not every group, obviously, but there are some groups out there that uh, partake in some adult beverages, which could lead to some uh, interesting accessibility issues in your game. Oh, I already have enough trouble picking up pieces sometimes. <laughs> no doubt. I find that I just, if I can't pick up a piece, I will just like put my hand on it so it, it sticks to it and I'll just pick it up that way. Like hopefully it's <laughs> sticky enough. They use whatever kind of gloss or finish, you know, whatever kind of finish that sticks to my hand. I just pick it up that way. But let's go back. You said paper money. So paper money isn't just, I shouldn't just hate it because it's terrible. I should also hate it because it's inaccessible. Tell me what's wrong with paper money. Anything that you have to shuffle around a lot can be a big problem when you're talking about accessibility. Uh, A lot of the problem comes with the fact that it is really, really, really thin. That's one of the biggest things. But there's also, say, in a lot of games, if you have 1s and 5s and 10s and 20s, you can't tell them apart by touch. You might be able to tell different coins apart by touch, but you can't usually tell the bills apart by touch. This is also a problem with U.S. money, U.S. dollar bills and $5 bills and so on. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, what are some of the ways that designers can overcome some of these accessibility issues? If you're using paper money, it's better to just go ahead and um, spring for punchboard coins instead. And so if you you do that, um, another thing is, say, punchboard pieces can be trouble, too. If you have if you have the cash for it, cubes are better. Little plastic um, cubes are better because they're less fiddly or wooden cubes. Or, or even like those big chunky tokens like they've got in Splendor. Those are good. But if you can't do that, just get punchboard that is, say, 2.5 millimeters thick instead of the 1.8 that's default. 
This one you'll actually notice is in patchwork. If you've ever played patchwork, you'll notice that despite being very small, those buttons are actually fairly easy to pick up. Yeah, for sure. It's easy to kind of get your finger up underneath it and just take it right off the table. Now, is this the kind of thing that the chunkier, the better? In general, yes. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Any other things to be thinking about from the physical side? If you're using different punch board tokens, you want to try and make sure that um, ones with different uses are a different size. Like your 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 one dollar coins could be say half an inch in diameter or a centimeter point twenty five in diameter, and then there, your next denomination up could be three quarters of an inch. That's like a, a centimeter and eight tenths or something. And then you could do an inch uh, in diameter for say the $10. You just have different size pieces and different shapes. If you do circles for one, you can do squares for another. That's one way. If you can use cubes and plastic bits, that works even better too. Yeah. Gotcha. Now let's go back to, we were talking about the cards, you know, if people have very small hands or maybe have motor issues or uh, nerve damage or carpal tunnel or something going on with their hands, it, would you just suggest having smaller hand sizes? Like what, what are the, uh, like, how do you deal with that, that issue? In general? Yeah. Yeah. Usually you don't want hand sizes to be over seven and eight if you can avoid it, like seven or eight cards. If you need to go over that for different game mechanic reasons, you know, you can do that. All of these accessibility rules are fluid and they have to be based around what actually works for your design. But in general, you don't want somebody holding much more than seven or eight cards. That's about where it gets unruly. Yeah, that's a great point. It's also probably too many options. You know, if you talk about, if you think about analysis paralysis and just with anybody, Absolutely. If, you, if you give somebody way too many cards, they have way too many options maybe. And going back to what you just said, again, all of this stuff we're talking about, there there is no game that does all of these. Like it's not possible no. to be fully accessible to anyone and everyone. It's just not possible. But I think the biggest it is, thing it, it truly is. Yeah. The biggest thing is just to do the best you can with what you have. And I think being aware, I think that's really what the big overarching overarching uh, concept of this show is just be aware of these accessibility issues and anywhere you can make your game a little more accessible, a little easier, a little more inclusive, do that because you're going to bring more people into the hobby. Exactly. It's not about perfection. It's just about doing it a little bit better than before being aware and trying to help as many people as you can. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you're a game designer, you've still got to pay for this. Like you or your publishing company has got to pay for it and your gamers still need to be able to pick it up and, and look at a game that feels like something else that they've seen or else that is in and of itself an accessibility issue. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. All right, let's go back into the, uh, the physical thing. One thing I was thinking about getting ready for the show is the physical issue of, well, maybe you're just not a very tall person and you can't reach the other side of the board. Like if the board's really sprawled out and it, you know, it's a lot of stuff going on, if you can't reach the other side of the board just because your arms aren't very long or whatever, there needs to be some kind of system where your game makes it very easy for other players to kind of help you do that. And so I think one thing that you mentioned in your blog uh, was having reference numbers on the, on the board. So mm -hmm. if you have a big grid, is make sure, almost like chess, you have reference numbers. So someone that maybe can't reach g7 that could say hey uh move my piece to g7 and it just makes it so much easier than them saying okay move it up no no left no up no not that uh, i'll yeah. just get up and walk around the table right and that kind of ruins the flow of play and so talk to me a little bit about that and, and any other ways that we can make a game more physically accessible grids and landmarks definitely do help sometimes it doesn't make sense to have a grid on a board but if you have something say a board that represents a physical landscape if you have a landmark you can say that piece next to the volcano can you pick that up and move that to um 
uh, next to, let's say, the river or some other physical feature. That makes it a little bit easier when you have defining features like that. Yeah. You, you have to strike a subtle balance to where um, your pieces are big enough to be handled easily, but not so big that they're unwieldy. Like, I can't think of a very good reason to have a, a board over... Uh, bigger than the size of a poster board, for mm -hmm. example. And that's like 28 by 22. I have no idea what that is in metric. Um, but it's something that you can kind of uh, just barely get your arms around if you're trying to hold on to it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, going back to what we were saying earlier, it also helps with just the fiddly nature of things. When, when you've kind of approached it with this mindset, this isn't just about accessibility for people maybe with a disability or some kind of disadvantage. It's also just making your game better in general because games in general just probably don't need a board that big, right? And games in general don't need paper money. And so it's not, it's not, also, not only a uh, accessibility for certain people, it's just kind of in general. And so uh, if you can get rid of any fiddliness, if you can get rid of any of these uh, things in your game, just in general, it's going to make the game better. Oh, also it's going to make things more accessible. And so, all right, let's move on to the mental side of things. What does it mean to make a game mentally accessible? So there's a lot that goes into that, and this is probably the biggest minefield because it is so, so, so hard to make a game mentally accessible if it is a heavier game. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you're not causing people to memorize anything more than is necessary. You want to make sure that people don't feel like they're tied down in choices unless that is critical to your gameplay. Basically, you don't want it to be more complicated than it has to be. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing you mentioned on your blog was having a simple version of a game, you know, a game, uh, a way to play your game where it's not as complex as the full game, offering rules to kind of draw some things back, to, uh, to kind of eliminate some extra rules, extra fiddliness. So talk to me a little bit more about that, like having a simple version. So if you have a simple version of a game, one thing that you can do is, like if your game normally runs a couple of hours and you have to, you know, meet several conditions to actually get through it, you can just cut the time short, cut out um, some of the extra stuff, and just get to the absolute core of the game. It doesn't even have to be its most competitive. It just has to be um, enough of a, of a straightforward game that can be played for people to get an idea of what it's like for later. One example, a really simple one, is say in Carcassonne, a lot of people play with farmers, mm -hmm. and the scoring on that is significantly more complicated to explain than roads and cities and uh, and the monasteries. Um, you can you can completely leave that out. Yeah, I, in fact, I believe it's an expansion on the base game. I'd have to double check the rules, but you can leave that out. You don't need that to play the game, and they even say that on the rules. This is optional. Yeah, definitely. And now I think this is one of those things where game designers tend to shy away from it because they think, well, who, why, why would anyone want to play the simple version? And if you watch reviews, so many reviews I've watched on, online of, of different games, the reviewer says, yeah, there's these simple rules, there's the quick start rules, whatever. You can just throw those away. You can just jump right into the, the more complicated stuff. But not necessarily, because that's not everybody. There's a lot of people that have different uh, things going on, and they really need those simple rules or the simple rules, even if it's just to kind of get familiar with the game at first. So maybe they play a game or two at the simpler in the simpler way, and then they move on to the more complicated one. So don't just shy away from it because you think nobody's going to use it, because I promise if your game sells to any number of people, any kind of large number of people at all, there are going to be people there that really wish there was a simpler way to play to kind of get used to the, the gameplay. 
Exactly. If a game is family weight or heavier, there is probably an opportunity to make a simple version of the rules somewhere. And like, again, if a, if a game is family weight or heavier, there's going to be like this 15, 20 minute period of time that's practically unavoidable where players are learning the game. They don't know how to strategize. They don't know all the rules and they're just still figuring it out. A simple version of the rules for the first time for those who choose to use it can really help them. Yeah, definitely. Now let's talk about the conditional rules. Like, I think that's one thing a, a lot of games run into is that they have so many rules, if then, then that kind of situation. So how, how, do, you, how do you make that a little bit easier, uh, make it a little bit more accessible, just kind of getting rid of those? One of the easiest things I can think of is just have some kind of physical marker that shows that the conditional is there. Um, say if you have a, a fictional mechanic where you know, your army is hungry or something. You have a little token that says hungry attack minus three or something like that. A really simple physical reminder can go a long way toward freeing up that space in your head where you're trying to make game calculations. You don't want that to be tied up with um, petty things like trying to remember conditionals or trying to remember small rules. Yeah, it's a great point. I think this is a place where player aids and can a player overview stuff maybe on the back of the rules or if you can give each player a, a card with you know, just kind of the general conditions of the game. I think that goes a long way. Absolutely. I think it's worth remembering that there's something called the five to nine rule okay. um, or seven plus or minus two, seven plus or minus two rule, wherein people can only remember so many things at once and that's like between five and nine things and once you get past that just like they just start forgetting things yeah that's a great point and again this is not just accessibility for a certain group of people that's just all people just make your game yeah, more just, accessible to everybody that's everybody yeah definitely all right any other mental accessibility things we need to talk about those are the most straightforward ones this a lot of well, one last thing about that. A lot of making games mentally accessible is just making sure you streamline your design and you don't have anything in it that you don't need. You want to take out everything in your game that doesn't actually make the statement you're trying to make. Yeah, definitely. And again, that gets back to just general design advice. All mm -hmm. right. Yeah, so, this is basically good quality assurance tips too. Yeah, for sure. Now let's go into the uh, emotional side. What does it mean to make a game emotionally accessible? There's a lot that goes into that. It can be anything from um, an emotionally inaccessible game could have, say, a theme that is really upsetting to a certain group of people. War can do this for a lot of people. When you have, um, say, a theme of colonization that can really strike a nerve with certain groups of people who really don't want to, to see that or act that out. It can be something like the game itself making you mad, having a big problem with runaway leaders, <clears throat> Monopoly, having a big problem, having a big problem with, uh, say, kingmakers or just bad team dynamics, stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. So basically, anything that makes a person want to flip a table. Pretty much. Any if if a game makes you want to flip a table, then that probably means it's got an emotional accessibility problem. <laughs> right. And again, it goes back to okay, if your game needs to have this theme, like that's really the experience you're going for, then then great, make make that game. But if it doesn't have to have that theme that maybe is really bothersome or really uh, frustrating or really dam damaging to certain groups of people, then maybe take a step back and go, okay, what can I do to maybe change it just a little bit? Because uh, if it's not really, if it doesn't really have to have that theme or that thing inside that theme, then maybe it doesn't need to be there. 
the most dangerous um, basic mechanics that I can think of that will get people in trouble are take that and player elimination. Yeah. Because player elimination, if you are getting kicked out because you lost the game, can feel terrible if you're just sitting there for 15 minutes or 20 doing nothing, looking at your phone. Um, you don't want that in a game unless that is really a critical part of the game. Um, I say that I've actually made it. I've made and published a game with player elimination in it. So, like, these are not super hard and fast rules. That was a part of that game, as was Take That as was a part of Warco. But um, you don't want you don't want to apply player elimination carelessly. Same thing with Take That. If your game is meant to appeal to a broad audience, you don't want people directly attacking each other directly um harming each other indirectly sure you can have that in the game still but take that is the most dangerous along with player elimination yeah right i mean there's a lot of people that just have a very negative emotional response when you destroy their stuff and all of a sudden you know i had this thing built up and now it's gone for no other reason than because you played a card not because i played yeah. poorly not because you know anything i made decision wise but just because you rolled the dice or you played a card and it went and it went that way. Yeah, it strikes a nerve for some people. And here's here's um, a particularly annoying emotional trade-off that you can have, too. If a game is too much of a skill game, it can feel like people have no chance of, of beating somebody who's just a real hustler at it, who's just gotten really good at it. You know, like Twilight Struggle will have that problem. I love that game, but that game has a problem where it's basically impossible to to win against an experienced opponent until you've put in your 20 25 hours or something it's worth it to do that but that'll just scare a lot of people off on the other side of that scale entirely if you have a game that's entirely luck that can scare people off too it can make them feel like well why am i even playing this is totally arbitrary and finding the right balance that comes down to who your audience is right and i think again we're going back into just general guidelines right and so if you want a game mm -hmm. that sells to a lot of like that sells well that has an opportunity to do really well in the market just be aware that making a game that's super hard to get into or making a game where people feel like well why didn't i just flip a coin that would have i could have done that in 12 seconds and we would have known who was going to win the whole thing in the end anyway like just be aware that's going to hurt your sales it's going to hurt your long-term business and profitability of things absolutely all right any other emotional accessibility things we need to talk about those are the biggest ones. Gotcha. All right, well, let's move on into the inclusiveness topic. This is kind of similar to the others, but a little bit different. What do we mean when we say inclusiveness as far as accessibility in games? This is the one that everybody likes to zero in on on social media because it's the one that makes people, frankly, the most mad, I think. <laughs> there is a tendency in games to just basically represent people who look like you and me, just white guys. Yeah. That's basically what it's getting at. We can dance around this, but that's what it actually means. A lot of people, a lot of gamers don't fit that demographic. A lot of potential gamers don't fit that demographic, and they just want to see someone who looks like them. That's it. I mean, it's really that simple. It's just cool to see someone who looks like you uh, represented on a game box or as a cool character in a game that you like. Yeah, for sure. That's a lot of it. Absolutely. Now, I've got two little girls, and my children are Honduran, and so they are brown. You know, they are not uh, white like I am, and so I know, you know, I've mm -hmm. played different games or just played with, you know, Barbie dolls and different things, you know, playing with them and, and having fun, and they would much rather have a little brown Barbie doll than a than a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Barbie doll because they, they don't relate to that, and this is a doll. This is yeah. just a little toy, and so, you know, scale that up to people who are 25, 35, 55, how old, and it's the same thing. It's, we want 
want to see ourselves in the game. And so if you're playing, especially games with lots of theme, where you're a character in a story, and maybe you're a knight or a warrior, you know, whatever, you want to look at that and go, okay, this is me, at least for the next two hours. This is the character I'm playing, and you want to be able to relate to that. So let's talk about some of the ways that we can make uh, make it just more inclusive, just in general in games as far as this stuff goes. General rule of thumb, if you're depicting people in a game, and you, unless you have a really, really, really hard and fast theme reason not to, just try and depict people who look different than you. Just try and depict a whole bunch of different kinds of people on your box and different types of people in your in your art. It's a it's a real simple fix, but a lot of people really appreciate the gesture. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of times it doesn't even cost that much more in in uh, publishing or in the you know the economics of things. I know one of my no. favorite. Uh, games is Legends of Andor, and the way they handle this is on your player boards, on the front side is the male version, and you flip it over, and the back side is the female version. And nothing else is different. It's just the picture of that character. That's the only thing that's different. But yet, if my daughter plays, she can flip it over to the female side, and I can play the male side, and everybody wins. And so just doing little things like that can go a long way. Yeah, just simple simple gestures like that mean a lot to people. Yeah, for sure. And having people of other skin tones or other cultures and all that. Not not feeling like you have to whitewash everything. Uh, so any any other thoughts? Any other advice as far as the you know being inclusive and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think I think one other thing that um, that upsets a lot of people unnecessarily, a lot of women unnecessarily, is that you'll see women in just illogically. Um, sexualized clothing in, in right. boxes and on and in game art it, it, like you, this is the uh, the proverbial uh, chain male bikini like it just doesn't <laughs> make sense right. but they do that because they want because you know they want guys to look at the box it's it's silly because like uh, you you might be getting a handful more guys to buy something but you you just burn a, a, a lot of women just by doing that. You just like, you just upset a lot of women unnecessarily by doing something like that. Yeah, definitely. And you also upset a lot of men who were very, you, yeah. you know, I've got daughters, you know, I, and so I am a very aware of, of this kind of stuff now because I had these two little girls growing up in a world that in a lot of ways says you need to show certain parts of your, your physical body for, to be noticed. Right. And yeah. so we, and I don't want that. I don't want that world. And so when yeah, I see that, Go ahead. It's probably upsetting to see as a father of two little girls. Yeah, definitely. And, and we live in that world right now. And so anytime I can uh, not give my money to someone who is, is actively pursuing that, I, you know, that thing, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of one of those things that it just seems like it needs to be gone. You know, like, like it shouldn't, yeah. it shouldn't really be a thing anymore. It's still sticking around. I understand sex sells and that this kind of, it's a marketing thing. I get it. But this is 2018, and so things are different now. And some things are better, some things are worse, but things are different now. And so I think that's the thing. Just design games like it's 2018 and be aware that it's right. 2018. To me, to me, my, my selfish thing here is just please don't make me embarrassed to pull out a game in front of my girlfriend. <laughs> right. That's my selfish rule right, right. here. Or my grandmother, for that matter. Yeah, yeah, or or, or <laughs> yeah, or like my family, because a lot of my family is starting to get into gateway games because I've gotten into this, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, leave behind a perfectly good game because of something like that. Yeah, definitely. Again, that's not necessarily someone who has visual impairments. Or We're just talking about general accessibility for all people. All right, any other any other thoughts on the inclusiveness stuff? Those are the big ones. Gotcha. Well, cool, man. Well, what would be just your general like best advice going into a game designer? Or maybe some, someone right now is listening to this and they're thinking, oh, 
crap, I've never even thought about this stuff. What what would you suggest that they start doing that kind of hit the major things that then they can start really getting into the maybe the more nuanced stuff later? But what's the big picture stuff? Well, the biggest thing that you want to get right is just be as mindful as possible when you're designing games and just play with as many different kinds of people as you can. People from different locations, you can do that on Tabletop Simulator online. You can play with people outside your country. Play with men and women, play with little kids and play with old people and play with people who... um, if possible, play with people who have physical disabilities if you can. Yeah, that's great advice. The The bigger your demographic of playtesters, right, the, the more demographics you can have, the better off your game is going to be. As I mentioned earlier, I have a very good friend who's a color, he's colorblind, and so when he plays my games, he sees things, literally, sees things very differently than I do, and so I'm able to take his advice, his ideas, his wisdoms, and make a better game because of it. And so just finding different kinds of people and saying, hey, here's my game, what do you think? Can you see everything? Can you reach everything? Is everything easy to pick up? How does the, the box art make you you know feel? All those things, because that's going to go a long way in the marketability, the profitability of a game. It's more than, than just uh, being politically correct or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about economics. We're talking about money. No, there is a hard economic um, incentive to get this stuff right. And I've actually done an article for Michael here and for people like us, it's like 10 really quick, easy accessibility wins with the with the, the subtext that these are cheap ways you can make your game more accessible too. I've actually got that pulled up. I can read off those 10 points if you'd like because that would give you something... I, I don't know, specific yeah. to put in there. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll, uh, I'll link to that uh, that page in the show notes, but tell you what, just give me the, the, the quick and dirty, give me the 10, and if people want to know more, they can go to the, the, the site and read more about it, but give me just those quick 10 that you came up with. 10 really quick accessibility wins that you can implement into your game right now for not a whole lot of money would be, um, number one, optimize your board and components for colorblindness. There's a lot of ways you can do that. Uh, two, Optimize your board and components around color contrast instead of just color blindness as well. That helps you when people are in low lighting. Uh, use shapes to differentiate objects along with colors. That's number three. Number four is simplify your rules and your text. That's just good game design in general. Uh, number five, use reference cards and trackers. Freeze up people's mental space. Uh, Number six, use standard card sizes instead of really big ones or really small ones. I'm talking about poker size cards. Uh, Number seven, get rid of fiddly components and get rid of any behaviors that require uh, fiddly components. Number eight, represent different races and genders in art. Nine, use gender neutral pronouns in your rules. And ten, don't overcharge for your game. That one's a big one. Yeah, that's actually something we didn't even talk about in, in the other parts of the show is the, the economic accessibility. Let's, let's touch on that just real briefly before we sign off. There's a general, I, I think, um, social norm where board gamers just have a whole lot of money to spend on board games. But like when you look at it from an outsider's perspective, 50 bucks is a lot for a board game. Yeah. That is not even a lot in the board game industry. That's I'm charging 49 for highways and byways and that's considered a pretty good price overall. But there's a lot of games that are uh, you know 80, 90, 100. Even your light stuff can be 25 and that can that can scare a lot of people off cuz that's a lot of money for some cardboard and paper 
you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just something to be aware of. And now it's, that's a hard thing. It's hard to, you know, cause again, this is business and we're trying to make money and you're trying to keep mm-hmm. your company afloat and pay your employees or whatever you're trying to do. And so you got to find that right price, but just again, be aware, be aware of these different mm-hmm. things and, and operate and design based on that awareness. Cause just in doing that, just in being aware and designing out of that awareness is going to take us <laughs> so, so much farther than we have been in the past. Well, Brandon, awesome, man. Uh, you got, you know, highways and byways on Kickstarter, right now and so I, I really appreciate your advice on all the, all the accessibility stuff but tell me about uh tell me about your game highways and byways is a two to four player game it's a family game kind of a casual board game and it's all about taking long road trips in the united states of america the game is essentially a race game you plan your vacation and you finish before anyone else and you do this with um you can do this with a, a little bit of like card drafting, some hand management and point to point movement. Very cool, man. And so I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So if that's the kind of game you wanna uh, check it out and find that link, find Kickstarter, find Brandon's game. Also, man, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're gonna talk about playtesting. Brandon's written a ton of different articles about playtesting, has some really good ideas and approaches that he he takes with playtesting. I wanna dive a little deeper in those. We're gonna do that over in the bonus round, but Man, really, thanks again for coming on the show. Good luck with your Kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?